How on earth, with everything that takes place when your child is starting to, what I like to call, blow sideways, all right? We, things have been going status quo, and suddenly we start to notice a drop in the grades. There's a new set of friends. There's a process of like undoing all these things that we have seen this beautiful, brilliant child accomplish over the years. And I hear this from every parent who comes to talk to us about whether or not their child needs treatment. They're so amazing. They're so intelligent. They're so resourceful. They're so wise. Why are they in this spot? We see these kids dress differently. They stop taking care of themselves. They have a different language about themselves and the language doesn't work and we know this as parents and okay so now our kid is blowing sideways our kid is starting to display risky behavior and as a parent it stresses us out and what i know is that moms and dads will go into self-blame and shame they will start to say things like what did i do wrong and it makes sense that's a that's a rational mind saying i need to look back and evaluate my actions my thoughts my feelings my influences my experiences to find out how my child ended up right here now for a parent to do that they have to be fully engaged in their prefrontal cortex and that's ideal because you actually could come up with a reason for the the current situation and solutions but the moment the parent is in a fear state, the moment the parent is in a stress state, their brain is going to go into survival mode. That's the limbic system kicking on. That's the fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, feed. That's the basic life of a lizard. But there's another piece that follows into it, and quite frankly, it's negative self-talk. And I, I think it shows up like a sneaky dragon, and I want to get into that later on at some of the more just passive aggressive ways that we begin to talk and think about ourselves, our relationships, our children, our family life that undermine. And once this becomes habituated, how do we unlearn it? My guest today on Beyond Risk and Back is Dr. Luciani, and he has just written a book called Unlearning. And we got to talk to this guy because he's dialed down the process of unlearning that negative self-talk get us in the right frame of mind to help our children. I'm your host, Aaron Huey, and I want to welcome you all, parents, to Beyond Risk and Back. My guest today is Dr. Luciani. Dr. Luciani, thank you so much for taking the time to teach, coach, and support the parents of Beyond Risk and Back. I appreciate you. No, it's my pleasure. These are certainly times where we need to do as much supporting as possible. We can. And uh, knowing that this podcast will live in perpetuity, we are recording this on uh, April 20th, 2020, during the COVID, our first, hopefully our last experience with the COVID crisis. And stress is at an all-time high. Anxiety is over the top. There's joblessness. There's the, the, the unemployment rate is massive. Our country is politically divided in such a way that many of us do not know which way to turn for support from a government level. It's, there, there feels like the basic safety of our human nature has been removed and everybody is like, hole up and fend for yourselves for a minute. And that's got to create a ton of anxiety. What's your take on this? I mean, right now your book is coming out. So what's your take on this? Well, I, I, I totally agree that we are in a kind of survival mode 
And uh, I think we, you know, never in my lifetime uh, has anything like this come around. And I've, you know, I've lived through uh, many tormenting times, Vietnam, etc. But this is different. You know, this is very different because our way of life, our ordinary everyday existence is not there. It's a surreal existence. Everything is the same, and yet it's different. I don't know, Aaron, for, for you, but for me, I have my office in my house. So things are, are relatively stable. But yet, in spite of my fortunate situation, things are all just completely different. And it's a mindset. We feel it. We feel it in our bones. Uh, we feel it in that, that kind of undercurrent of anxiety and trepidation that's out there. We try to just turn off the TVs and not be overly stimulated. But it's there. It permeates everything. Doctor, how did you get into this? What are you a doctor of? How, what's, your, what's your background in education? And how, how did you end up with this book in your hands? Well, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression was really the outcropping of uh, my private practice. I've been in private practice over 40 years now, and uh, it's, it's taught me uh, a way of approaching uh, emotional duress uh, in a straightforward way. I was, I was originally trained uh, traditionally, Freudian, Jungian, and it was, it, it was great. They lo patients loved it. We analyzed dreams, but no one was getting better. So I, I'm an impatient guy. And I said, you know, there's just got to be another way. And that way turned out to be, long story short, a cognitive way, approaching psycho psychology in a problem-solving way. And, uh, and this is, the evolution came with my thinking, with my patience, and the writing was just a natural outcrop of that. This is my seventh book. I have published in 10 different languages, and I get mail from all over the world, especially from China right now, coincidentally. And, uh, and these are young people, and, and they're just looking for, with inadequate systems of mental health, they're looking for ways to feel better about themselves, to feel less anxious, less stressed. So I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm very fortunate. So let's talk about the unlearning depression, anxiety and depression piece. What is, what have we learned that we have to unlearn? Let's, let's start with what's going on that we're going to then have to deconstruct. Well, let's, let's start out with a premise that I have, and that's insecurity. Everyone to some extent has insecurity. We don't live in a perfect world. No one has perfect parents. We have illnesses, separations, loss. So we all have insecurity. Now, what happens, though, depending on that core of insecurity, you begin to try to compensate because the one th instinct we have, of course, is to not want to die. Being in control is a basic human need. Being out of control just sends us over that cliff. So we want to be in control. We develop controlling strategies. And the child at a very young age You'll we'll display, go to a, a, a playground and watch kids. You'll see some will be avoiding, some will be crying, some will be bullies. We all have coping strategies. As long as these coping strategies work, then we're fine to some extent. But what happens is that trying to control and cope with life is different from just being and living life. Controlling life requires effort. It's like lactic acid of the mind. In time, what happens is that that lactic acid, i.e. stress, begins to deplete us. The control juggle begins to fall apart. And this is the point where we start to see anxiety and depression. It seems like, like I get this, like it seems that we're talking about when we create these strategies that are, there are strategies that are actually going to help us maintain control. For example, exercise, good sleep, drink, eating healthy food, drinking lots of water, you know, movement. These are things that keeps our body in optimal 
performance. But what feels like a coping strategy is coming home from a stressful day of work or not having work right now and dealing with your stress by binge watching on Netflix and having next thing, you know, three glasses of wine. And that, while that is a coping strategy to relax you, this hypnotic state of these flashing lights and violence and sexuality and things like this, while you're slowly numbing and altering your mind, is truly a maladaptive coping strategy. And that's where you're saying the tipping point's coming in is these maladaptive coping strategies, they, we lose control through them. Yeah, and no one's going to argue that there's good control and there's bad control. Good control, we buckle our seatbelts when we get in the car, we take vitamins. Uh, this is good control. Bad control is when we start to imagine things that have never, what ifing, for example, worrying. Now, when we worry, we don't worry about things going right, like, geez, I hope I don't win the lottery. You know, we worry about <laughs> things going wrong. And so, but things going wrong don't exist in the present moment. They exist in some fictional future. Right. So when we worry, what we're doing is we're projecting our insecurity onto this blank screen and we're saying, what if, what if, what if? So, so these are controlling strategies that, that really worry begets worry. It just builds stress. And as stress builds, we deplete chemistry. And when we deplete chemistry, we create imbalances and we have emotional disturbance. So there's a tall order taking place. And I, I feel like I possess the gift to hear the parents who are listening to the show, hearing their voice in the head where they go, now, wait a minute. Because what happens is I've got a child who's acting out. They're, they're beginning, and I don't, I don't say good choices and bad choices. I say good choices and risky choices, right? Because all choices are trying to get these needs met, these basic human needs met. But there are risky, maladaptive choices. So the kid's starting to represent and display risky, adaptive choices. Mom is staying up all night, worried sick, can't sleep, and now the depletion begins because now her body's not an optimal place. She gets up and so she can maneuver the day. She's into three cups of coffee instead her normal two or one and a half. And now her adrenals are being completely stressed and she's not thirsty, she's energized, so she's not drinking water. And by the time she gets to lunch, she still hasn't eaten, she has a massive, right? I'm starting to spell out the daily brain chemistry crash that takes place just because our kid is acting out in a bad, stressful, risky way. And it starts to bring the entire family structure down. And now I hear another doctor saying, well, you just got to change your mind and not stress out and get some good sleep. And I know <laughs> in our short conversation before the show, there's a process to this. You know, the parents that struggles uh, with the child or children, um, one thing that is essential to realize is the concept of control. Uh, as I said earlier, we all like to be in control. We loathe being out of control. It's our human instinct. So when a parent feels out of control with a child, of course they're going to feel some degree of anxiety. First thing to realize is that there are some anxieties that are inescapable. And having a child that is behaving out of control or risky is going to generate a normal degree of responsive anxiety. What's important though is that the parent doesn't add and implement and extrapolate that normal anxiety by adding to that the what ifs. Where's this gonna go? What happens if he or she keeps doing ABC? 
So the parent needs to be concerned with if they are taking themselves out of dealing with a difficult moment and extrapolating that into the next 20 years of what's going to be when this kid grows up. So stay present, realizing, of course, that the behavior at hand is enough to deal with without adding a future what if to it. Is this is this easier said than done, or is is part of your book, uh, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, is part of your book about literally creating process for this? It is hard to do, yeah, and it requires practice every single day. What makes it easy is having a format. If you have a format, if you have a plan, if you have a way of moving, it's like playing an instrument. You know, if you stay with it and you start to hear a few notes coming together, it encourages you to go on and ultimately play the entire piece. For parents, it is important to realize that if they are working within the confines of a format, they feel more in control with the loss of control. I don't know if that makes sense, but... It, it totally does. And, and I want to say at the beginning, the moment you said you, you did, uh, you know, Jungian, I got very excited because I'm an absolute <laughs> archetypal nerd. I, I am. And, and that is what my book is on, is on the four prime archetypes, varying a little from, uh, from uh, uh, Carl Jung's. But as you will find out through this podcast, I'm way smarter than he was. But uh, <laughs> the, I, read, I, I, I just, I hang on his every word and interpretation and, and symbol. But that's why I said at the beginning that this thing is a dragon. That old story of the warrior and the dragon and the princess is very much about trauma. And it's, I think it, I believe that that concept and the way I teach that is that that is our first uh, uh, telling of how trauma infects the body. The village being the body, the king and queen being the prefrontal cortex, the princess representing innocence, soon to be the the grown, the the queen, the future, the hope, the, the esperanza, right? The warrior being virtue and value overtaking this reptilian entity that steals everything from the town. That's anxiety and depression. This thing casts a shadow over the village. It takes all of our self-worth, the gold from the castle. It takes all of our the way we nurture ourselves, burning the crops, killing the cattle. And we are left with nothing but this thing. And the dragon feeds on mom calling her sister or her brother or dad calling his brother or father and saying, man, my kid is just acting and I can't, I'm so stressed. I'm not sleeping. And now grandpa's talking about it and grandpa talks to the other siblings. So aunt and uncle all know about it. And the kids are asking aunt and uncle, why is Johnny being like that? Well, you know, my sister's son is having problems. And pretty soon there's an identified patient for the family and this psychic overwhelm of kid, you're ruining the family comes in. And so the stress that we express suddenly comes back to feed our own dragons. So how as a parent, and I love what you said about practicing, because what we do 99% of the time is what we're going to do when the poop hits the spinning blades of the fan, right? Is we're going to do what we've practiced. So what does practice look like? How do we awaken the warrior to face this dragon? I'm going to drag you into your Jungian symbolism. I swear, Doc. <laughs> well, uh, if I recall from uh, all my, uh, st I, I took, uh, I think it was 10 years of training analysis. So uh, uh, it is something dear, near and dear to me. I studied with Jack Sanford out in California. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, what's really important is to, to recognize that you use the, the reptilian brain. Yeah. Um, I, 
I, I really connect with that. You see, to me, anxiety, and this may sound heretical, but anxiety and depression to me are part of the homeostatic tendency of our psyche to try to find a way to cope, to balance. So someone may yes. be saying, how the heck can anxiety or depression be there to help us survive? Well, think of it this way, uh, maybe circuit breakers in a house. Right. If we start overloading and overloading, anxiety is really comes around and it's, it's kind of replaced, takes that circuit breaker and doesn't want it to trip. So we're, we're trying desperately to find answers. So we, we amp everything up another degree, another degree. We're trying to figure out. We have panic. We go out. We're just trying to engage ourselves in a kind of hyper hypersonic way to find solutions. Depression is the opposite. It pulls us away. It withdraws us from life to protect us. So anxiety throws us at the world to protect us. Insecurity retreats, pulls back gets imploded, and we're, we're always just trying to survive one way or the other. So anxiety and depression are, of course, of that reptilian brain sure. that really know no bounds and really could give a hoot about what the cognition wants and is really just trying to keep you away from being de uh, devastated by life itself. Yeah, it's trying to keep you alive. Exactly. Exactly. So, so let's start to get into the process that you talk about in your book. Like, what is... Yeah, you, you talked about the practice. What is it that I'm practicing? You said, take out the what ifs. What am I replacing the what ifs with? Let's, let's get into the meat and potatoes for the parents. Well, I, have, I call it, uh, it's a four-step mind talk okay. uh, process. The first step is, and I'm going to just, of course, uh, you know, keep these down to bare minimal. Um, uh, essentially, the first step is to learn to separate facts from emotional fictions. Now, this, this sounds very simplistic, I understand that, but I'm sure that, Aaron, that you experience yourself that people treat their feelings oftentimes as if they're facts. I feel I can't go on. Well, okay, but that's not a fact, it's a feeling. Feelings aren't necessarily facts. So the first thing is to really begin to understand that you have to start with an, a kind of cognitive approach. You have to start asking that simple question, okay, I'm feeling this, this, is it a fact or is it a fiction? Now, if it is a fact, then it's verifiable. It's there in front of you in the here and now. If it's something that's, that you feel may happen tomorrow, if it's one of those worry what ifs, no matter how problematic, uh, probabilistic it may seem, uh, it is really of the future. So therefore, it can't be a fact. So pull yourself back fact versus fiction. The second step is to develop what I call an active mind. And to do a mind check every once in a while and to really take a look at the quality of what's going through your mind moment to moment, especially when you feel that knot in your stomach and the heat rising in your head, do a mind check. Where are my thoughts at right now? And you keep in mind there are three tip-offs, uh, doubts, fears, and negatives. Those are the three tip-offs that we're heading south and that we are now engaged in a neurotic kind of spiral. Doubts, fears, negatives. So those three words, we separate facts from fictions. Now we have to put a stop to the runaway train of insecurity-driven thinking. That's step two. Step three is responsive living, learning to live responsively to life. And as as touted all over the internet and in every therapist's office, we have to learn to become more present and we have to learn to not use that capacity of our minds to 
live in the future, to protect us from dragons that may never appear at our doorstep, but to live more in the present. Now, no one ever lives completely in the present. I don't care if you're a monk in the Himalayas. It ain't going to happen. But you, the more often you remind yourself and pull yourself back and come back to that present, the more you're going to reduce stress and anxiety. So anxiety, for example, will peak, and it'll stay here throughout the day unless we interrupt that and bring it down to the present. What's in front of you? What's going on right now? Lord knows we have enough to deal with in that moment. So there's where you can do a little exercise, a little deep breathing. There's where you can start to really get in touch with the, the bottom-up way of, of just learning to calm the mind. And the last step is the coaching step, and that's the motivation. To overcome any emotional struggle, especially anxiety and depression, you have to keep yourself in the game. You have to stay motivated. You have to believe. And the way to really get to that point is to cultivate optimism. The optimist and the, and the pessimist both live in the future, granted. But the optimist lives a better life in the present because of that attitude. So cultivate optimism. It's a risk. But we're talking about leaps of faith. What do you have to lose by not risking optimism? This is phenomenal. I think that I want to I want to say that the step 1 the fact from emotional fiction what's verifiable. I mean that that fear state, the what ifs. That's what we were talking about either. It literally keeps us outside of our own skin in the moment. And I we we try to tell the kids, you can't mow the lawn tomorrow. You can't do the dishes yesterday. There's only what you can do right now and what you can't do right now. And that's it. That's all. And a lot of times it's like, that's the, where the feeling of powerlessness comes up is that right now I have no power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, be feeling helpless, feeling victimized uh, to some extent, you know, we, we tend to put ourselves in, into the victim mode. Uh, and it's always important to realize that victims by definition are helpless and there you are never helpless. Um, you know, if, if you can't get in the front door, there's a side door, there's a right, back door, there's right. a cellar door. There is always a way. Now, sometimes the way isn't obvious. And obviously, sometimes you have to wait for the way. But that's where the cultivation of optimism comes in. I may not be able to solve this problem. Or little Johnny or little Sally are really acting out and I can't control it. The thing is, with optimism, you wait for more insights. You wait for something to find you. You know, there's a Zen expression, when the pupil is ready, the teacher appears. Right. And oftentimes with life, it's a matter of not just attacking life, but it's a matter of being patient and resilient enough to wait for answers to find you. Now, this active mind, step two, the quality of what's going on. I think this is where, like, we will never get to step two if that step one is unsuccessful, right? If we if we don't get to the facts of what we're experiencing right now, that the the presence, as you said, that awareness, that second part, the active mind, where we can say, "Wow, like, I, I am really afraid," and that that's a quality thought. Versus, oh my God, what if they get kicked out? And oh my God, the phone just rang. What if that's the principal and I have to leave work to go pick up my kid? That's fear-based of what may or may not be on the other end of the phone. But going into that second space of the active mind of saying, okay, those aren't those thoughts aren't helping me. Just that awareness is yeah. going to help to settle the nervous system, which is ultimately what these first two steps are. Because we cannot do the third step 
responding, which I love that it's the responsive mind because so far we've been living in the reactive mind, you know, and then mm -hmm. it's just, we're, we're reacting to what's going on. We're reacting to what's going on. I've run a martial arts school for 30 years. I have never once taught self-defense. Self-defense is a reaction to what's taking place. Martial arts, the art of war is a response to what's taking place. And it requires, like I said, that active mind that there's a quality of what's taking place in your brain that's suffering if you ha cannot separate that fact from fiction. So I, I want you to describe step two real quick before we come forward to step three like I just did. And this doubt, fear, and negativity that these are just low quality, low vibrating uh, uh, concepts. They're, they're, it's, it's okay. Uh, let, let me just lay this out a little bit. First of all, because of insecurity, we develop these habits of control. Yes. We, we are creatures of habit. If it weren't so, we'd have to wake up and learn to tie our shoes every morning. Uh, the thing is that we are quick to develop habits, and sometimes these are not so healthy habits. This is where the doubts, the fears, and the negatives come in, especially the ruminative doubts, fears, and negativity. So what happens in step two is that typically the habits of thinking that have traveled with us throughout our lives are there and in play and when triggered will do their thing and create havoc. This occurs with passive mind. Our thoughts will control us if we sit back in the consciousness of our active mind, which is now re maybe receded, and we allow our passive mind habits to dictate. That's where you feel like a victim. That's where you feel anxious. I feel depressed. You've now really, in a passive way, allowed the negativity, the doubts, and the fears to own you. So step two is really a matter of switching from passive mind to active mind. An active mind is really, you can approach that in ways that are just very straightforward, like I like the mantra, stop it, drop it. And you could sometimes be effective with that. Sometimes when you're in the throes of a habit, it's not as easy. And I understand that habits are very difficult to break, but not impossible. All habits are learned and all habits, even anxiety and depression. And yes, I treat anxiety and depression as habits of insecurity that are either fed and fueled by insecurity or they're starved by our cognition. And we starve them by saying no to the fictions of passive mind thinking. Uh, uh, visuals, by the way, uh, I'm sure you know about visualizations and how they change the brain chemistry. One visualization I love is just, and a patient taught me this one. She said, she, she says, when I get anxious, I'm holding on to a whole uh, array of balloons, helium-filled balloons, and they're all colors. And I let go of one balloon at a time, and I sit and I hold on to the string with all the balloons, and I watch, for example, the red balloon just going up and going up and fading and getting smaller and smaller until I can't see it anymore. Then I go to the blue balloon, and I do that until I forgot what I was worrying about. Wow. So we do have control with an active mind. So whether it's using gimmicks or whether it's using visualizations or whether it's using a mantra, the key is to realize the active conscious mind rules. Unconscious, subconscious, less than conscious is no match for an active, focused mind. You know, and uh, you and I were talking before 
hand. It's, it's that I, I told you I am an affirmations geek. I, I live my life by affirmations. Today was my every day, and in every way, my life gets better and better. And that is spoken, and I also write it down, and I also write it in runic. So I'm, I'm practicing another language. I'm engaging my whole brain. I'm saying it when I'm writing it. I, and I try to engage as much of my body. And I've even gone to the point where I will say that into a microphone and then take, repeat it over and over and over in GarageBand and put it on top of my favorite heavy metal music and listen to my own voice telling me what I think about life while I'm exercising. And it is literally how I've hacked my own brain to maintain a, re, a responsive state to what's going on so that I can look at it and say, everything that's happening is happening for a reason. And that reason is here to serve me. I don't know how. I don't know why that's true. I just know because I've said it so many times that every day and in every way my life gets better and better. I believe it. I I, would, I might alter that a little just for me personally, yes. instead of everything is here to serve me. I, I would say everything here is to provide an opportunity to serve me. I love it. And it's up to me. The choice has to be there. You know, you, you also mentioned earlier fight, flight, freeze, and a few, a few Faint, others. Faint, fornicate, and feed. But I have a new one to add to that. It's uh, fight, flight, freeze, and fester. Ooh, you just added the seventh <laughs> representation of the dragon, yes. the fester. Oh, and you made it start with an F. I am totally in love with you, doctor. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Okay. Festering is what we do when we just spin and spin and spin. And when we ask ourselves, how do I stop spinning? Well, that's the key. The key is that's passive mind spinning. You've lost, you've lost the ability to believe that you can actually be in charge of your own mind. What this sets up, you called it the what ifs, right? And that's when we're in this space of saying, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? Of course it's, and that can lead to the depression that can feed the anxiety. And I also see that when we get into the fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, feed, and fester, that's added now, that is added, that's in the repertoire, I have plagiarized it from you, um, is that you are only left with setting up expectations for others so that you can be happy. And the way I think of that is that little lizard that's living on the rock, the only way it can be totally free is if the predator bird stops flying over and casting a shadow, putting it back into fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate, feed, and fester. Like, that's it. That's all you're left with. If only my child would stop smoking pot, then this family could get back to normal. And the moment we set up expectations of other people to change, we truly are powerless because we've given them all our power. So this, this then takes us into this responsive lifting and then that coaching and motivating where you said, even when I did my mantra, everything happens for a reason. And that Reason gives me an opportunity, provides me an opportunity to find out how it serves me. You're giving me choice back. You're giving, you're handing me power to solve my problems back. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I think that the problem with, with ineffective living is, is the passivity. Um, we, we fall into that, you know, in, into, into a mindset where uh, we, we just, we just, don't accept the fact that we can, especially if you've had a, a life of turmoil and insecurity and really have not proven that to yourself. 
it can start small, but always realize that you are the end result of all the habituated experiences that have shaped you. And like a mold, a clay that you mold on a wheel. Okay, so you're you're saddled with a whole array of kind of inhibiting habits. And it really feels like you're not as good as the next person. And it really feels like you can't do A, B, C, or D. And again, feelings are not necessarily facts. What you need to do is to recognize that you, like every other person with 46 chromosomes on this planet, you have as much potential for happiness as anyone. If you are not happy, the question is, what can I do to start taking more responsibility for that which... Now, it's not circumstances. Circumstances will never bring us to our knees. It's how we interpret those circumstances. So don't say, oh, I don't have money or I don't know how I'm going to meet the bills. Take 10 people with an IRS audit. Five may feel they can't go on another step. Four may feel they have to start therapy. And the last one might say, who cares? You know, I'll handle it. When you get to a point of realizing how many problems have I solved in my life? A hundred, a thousand, 20,000. What makes me think I won't figure out one way or another how to handle today's problem, tomorrow's problem, my kids' problems? So one of the things that I know comes up with the children that we work with, and as you can imagine, doctor, 90% of the children, 12 to 17, that I have in this facility over here are dealing with either depression or anxiety. But one of the things that they then begin to parrot, they parrot each other, they repeat it back to us, they hear each other say this, and they truthfully believe it. And I, and I want you to be able to break this down for the parents. When they say... All these bad things always happen to me. You know, I, I've tried suicide three times because I don't see life getting better to this. But because we're dealing with trauma, because the dragon has torched the village and it has returned, so they build up the defenses, the dragon came back, they threw out sacrifices, right? Sacrificing who they are in hopes that the dragon won't strike the core, but just take what they're willing to offer. The dragon blows right past that, keeps knocking the castle down. All some of these children have is evidence that life sucks. How do we teach them that that positive frame of mind, and we're not just talking about, this is not just motivation state change. We are literally talking therapeutic trait change. And those are very different things. The seminar world, people jumping up and down, saying their affirmations, anchoring things in with their fingers pinched and high-fiving and hugging makes you feel good for about three weeks. 90 days of that, which is what we're looking at in a therapeutic intervention recovery model, can create one trait change where we literally say, I'm not going to cut anymore to resolve these issues. But if all a child has is evidence that life sucks, how do we convince them that the future won't? It is the question. It is the really the only question that many parents face. And you have to begin with, with really helping them understand that the world is not black or white. It's, it's what we make it. And they have somehow wound up, perhaps to no conscious thought, that they've created this world, but nevertheless, this is where they have wound up. And it's, a, it's often a very dark world that they are in. We need to first validate the fact that this is where they wound up. And we need to help them understand that there are circumstances that led to this habit. 
if we can help them understand that they are being ruled by a habituated pattern of darkness, that basically if every pattern and every habit can be broken, then they have to find a way to chip at that. Somehow you have to give them a format for optimism. Now, that's a stretch. Sometimes optimism is too far. So we try to get them from the abject negativity and pessimism to a place of neutrality. And Lord knows, neutrality can be a real blessing at times. So let's let's not you know start waving flags and yelling to the sky, but let's try to get to a neutral place where you can just relax yourself and realize that there are choices, there are there is a way from the brink. I'm not asking you to see the way, but I am asking you to just stop demanding that you identify with negativity. This is an adherence that you're doing out of stubbornness, out of uh, selflessness, but you are letting yourself be drawn into this cave. And if you can just realize we're only trying to neutralize this, catch a breath. You've been underwater, you feel like you're drowning, got to get to the surface, catch a breath. You'll see the horizon. You'll know how far you have to swim at that point. You know, I, I want parents to understand that what Dr. Luciani just did is describe why treatment exists in a 28 day, three month, four month, 18 month model for adults and children. There is no expectation of people who work in the industry of recovery that in four months, some person in 28 days, especially let's use the 28 day model. Someone who's been addicted to heroin for 22 years is not going to suddenly stop needing heroin in 28 days. But what that 28 days did was give them a breath. And, and it's unbelievably expensive. It's terrifying for a family, but it give it puts them in a neutral place to make a choice. You want to know why people use methadone and suboxone to, to, to help? It's because it might be the only breath this addict gets. That, that is what we're talking about. Doctor, this has been brilliant. Your, your book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, please talk about it, its availability, everything that's going on right now. Unlearning Anxiety and Depression. It's the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life. I believe in it. I, I believe it is the uh, culmination of 40 plus years of practice. And uh, it is an evolutionary book. And it has been with me in three different guises. Uh, I think this edition is really where I want it to be. Um, unfortunately, right now, Amazon is not taking uh, non-essential books. So it's, it's only a pre-order on Amazon. The Kindle version is available. And uh, we're very proud of it. Uh, I think that uh, I know my wife is. So, <laughs> and oh, by the way, I should mention, um, uh, you know, we were talking about adversity and of course what, what's been going on in the world. Um, and, and I know it doesn't compare, but nevertheless, there are traumas and there are traumas. My daughter's wedding was canceled because of this. After Mine too. Year, Mine too. Really? Yes. Yeah. She was going to be married on May 16th. My daughter was May 20th. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and everyone in the family, the year of preparation, the anticipatory uh, feelings, um, you know, these, these are things that, uh, and I try to help my daughter, who, who really is quite a wellness expert herself, uh, who took a day or two, and I said, you know, you take your time. Uh, and she did, and she bounced back, and she's, you know, she's going to handle this, and, uh, and she's going to be a bride somewhere down the line, and that's fine. 
but all of life, everything in life, it, you know, I, I am just such a firm believer. And I mentioned that the adage I've lived by when the pupil is ready, the teacher appears. If I don't have an answer today, or if I don't have a wedding today, there will be one tomorrow. So uh, I, I'm an optimist. I'm a profound optimist. When I meet with patients, the one thing I insist on is I say, look, you don't have to, you don't have to give a hoot about optimism, pessimism, or anything else. But I'm entitled to be optimistic about your therapy. Are you taking uh, telehealth patients right now? Is your practice booked up if people want to get in touch with you? Yeah, it's pretty booked up. Uh, you know, it fluctuates. People come, people go. Um, but right right now, yes, with this epidemic, uh, it is kind of booked up. Where? Um, how can people get in touch with you? Can you give them an email or a phone number or a website, please? Yeah, a website would be the best. Great. And there's a contact. It's www.selfcoaching.com dot net net and uh, i have all my books there and a lot of articles i post a blog every day so you might want to come in and check my daily blogs and uh, i appreciate that it has really gone beyond my practice the ability to reach more people literally all over the world and i don't say that in an arrogant way i say that in a humbling way it just it just really makes my life feel complete and uh you know what what, what are we here for i don't know but I do know it makes me feel like I'm here for something. Dr. Luciani, for, uh, he's the author of the book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression. Selfcoaching.net is his website. You said earlier, and I, it's actually, as soon as you said it, I'm like, oh, that's the name of this show. Stop <laughs> it and drop it. I love that. That's, a, that's an easy one to remember. Um, so Dr. Luciani, thank you for being on Beyond Risk and Back. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Stay, stay with me just for a second. Parents, look. Step one, separate the fact from emotional fiction. Step two, develop the active mind. Step three, responsive living. And step four, coaching and motivation. That's what we're looking for. You can talk to your children about these four steps until you are blue in the face. But if you're not modeling these steps and doing this work yourself, they will learn nothing from your lectures. We will learn nothing from the parent lectures. We learn from watching what mom and dad do or what mom and dad don't do. So parents, as always, the mantra, take care of yourselves first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. I want to thank Deepin Productions for doing all the sound work and music work for this podcast. Uh, and if you would like to learn more about Deepin Productions, I want you to go to deepinproductions.com and check him out. I love this dude. If you are wondering if your child needs residential treatment care and are not sure, please go to firemountainprograms.com. That's firemountainprograms.com. Dot com. You can always email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com. And I am now doing private family coaching and it's going fast. But if you go to firemountainprograms.com slash coaching, and we can have a conversation on whether coaching or treatment is what your family needs, we will be honest upfront. And if we can't help you, we will get you the help you need. Once again, my thanks to Dr. Luciani for his stop it and drop it attitude. Unlearning Anxiety and Depression is the name of his book available on Kindle now and go to selfcoaching.net. Parents, we will see you next week on Beyond Risk and Back.